Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening and welcome to Fun About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Isaac. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher's iTunes and right here at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs> I'm very excited about today's show, but I don't know what's going on with it. We're going to talk about uh, brewing winter holiday beers, brewing in the cold, and we're going to talk a little bit about what to do during the holidays. Are there any events, anything, any announcements you would like to announce? Mary? I have zero announcements. That's what's happening in the world today. <laughs> well, there's Thanksgiving. So thanks thanks to you. Yeah, you too, Mary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're getting back to brewing. We had two shows uh, with Alita and Alita on preserving food that's so Awesome. Those shows were so great. And I'm super inspired. Kuzma and I are about to embark on a new sourdough bread project. I'm super psyched about So this, I will actually. confess that I have not kept a sourdough starter in years. So, um, and I'm super excited to get back to it. So we're going to follow Deborah Wink's process, which uses, uh, basically you're going to start, we're going to start with whole grain and a pineapple juice to bring down the pH. And there's a whole explanation about that. I know that we haven't done a bread show yet, but there is a sourdough bread show coming to you soon. But anyway, to, for tonight's show, we're going to talk about specifically about brewing for the holidays, both Thanksgiving, yep, last minute stuff you can do to tweak your beers for this Thursday's holiday. And then also brewing tweak, for- Tweak, not twerk. Don't get too excited out there, buddy. <laughs> and then we're also going to talk about just brewing for the winter as well. So beers that that work really well in both winter brewing conditions, whether they be extremely hot or extremely cold, as often it is depending on your brewing scene, your brewing setup. Um, and then also we're going to talk about, hey, winter flavors. So what do we want? What We're going to talk about what we're brewing for winter with our special guest, Bahia. Bahia. Welcome in. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Put the headphones on. Let's go. I'm right. so excited because, anyway, so we have some good stuff. So let's hope that you're going to come out of this show inspired to to, um, to brew with winter flavors and also get ready for Thursday. One of the things that inspired today's show actually was reading a blog from Brooklyn Homebrew uh, talking about what their, uh, what's it called? It's called the... Uh, Spillover? The boil over. The boil over. <laughs> the boil over, where uh, different members of their staff are talking about kind of what they're doing, with, what they're up to, what they're into. And Bahia, you talked about brewing in cold environments. Yes, I did. My house gets really cold in the winter, which really As does ours. <laughs> which really limits the yeast, uh, my yeast options, because I've got to find stuff that will actually fully ferment at 55 to 60 degrees. And so what, what have you been making, or what's your approach? Um, so I just did a Goza, which is what my blog post was on, um, using the German ale yeast, which is the Y yeast 1007. Um, and that is totally happy to ferment 
down to 55 degrees, um, and it's a nice, clean yeast with a lot of different applications. It would traditionally be used for alt beers um, or things like Agoza, um, which is a kind of obscure German sour, salty beer. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can introduce the sourness into that style. Um, so I kind of did my blog post about the, I'd call it like the easy cheater method. <laughs> I like these methods. <laughs> yeah. This is also a method I've done as yeah. well. And I do it exactly the same way to you do. So yeah. What way is that? Um, so to get the sourness, um, you can either introduce it by pitching a culture of lactobacillus, um, which will give it that like lactic flavor. But um, to do that, you're going to end up with lactobacillus in all of your equipment, um, which can or be... Or you could potentially. You potentially. It can be removed, but plastic equipment, little scratches, bacteria can hide, and it's just a risk that you take when you're pitching cultures. So some people do have separate um, equipment for doing sour projects using bread. Lacto is one of the easier cultures to remove, but um, sometimes it's just nice to avoid any potential contamination. Um, and then another way you and can... And also, lacto takes time. It takes time. I mean, yeah. it takes yep. less time. We've talked about kettle souring a lot on this show. So it takes less time if you kettle sour, but it still takes at least a day to kettle sour yep. typically. And then if you're pitching lacto in primary fermentation or, you know, in some kind of combination with your saccharomyces, that usually takes weeks, if not longer, for lacto to really sour. Yeah. So. Um, and so, yeah, doing it this way, you know, you get a quick a quick turnaround on your beer. Um, and then kettle souring or sour mashing um, is a technique that I do really like, but it involves incubating your wort at about 100 degrees for the entire souring period, which is 24 to 72 hours. So that's not exactly something that it's really appealing to do in the cold weather. I like to do that in the summer when it's just 100 degrees in my apartment and I can just <laughs> leave my mash ton out and it just does its thing. Um, so, yeah. The way that I got the sourness in was just by adding a high percentage of acidulated malt, which is a German malt um, that's been coated in a lactic culture. There's lactic bacteria on all grain naturally, but the acidulated, um, during the malting process, it's either added separately or just allowed to... I think it's added separately. It's added separately. They're sprayed. They're sprayed, yeah. And they have, the acidulated malts, they have between 1% and 3% um, like acid levels, and it, Supposedly, it's supposed to be listed on the grain bags what the acid content is. Although I Have haven't, that? I haven't ever seen <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, um, supposedly it's going to be there, but it's not. So you don't know exactly how much sourness you're going to impart when you're doing that. Um, but for a five gallon batch, you can I've read you can use between one and a half and two and a half pounds of acidulated malt. And I find that like two pounds, you usually get a good flavor. What is that percentage wise? I mean, if you make you know. Um, you know, it varies. The first Goza that I did was Danielle's recipe, and that was a very small grain bill. I think we used, like, a total of six pounds of combined wheat and Pilsner malt and then two pounds of the acidulated. And then this time, I think my grain bill was, like, eight pounds with two pounds of the acidulated. So the percentage is going to vary. Do you think that the percentage makes a difference versus uh, because once the once the sour is there you're already getting it to a certain yeah it doesn't it doesn't really make a difference i don't think because you're um when you are doing it this way so the mash ph is something that's important for proper enzymatic conversion in the malt in the malt in the mash sorry yeah when you're doing it in the mash um and so when you're using such a large amount of acidulated malt you need to mash it separately so you can either do your main mash for an hour and then add the acid malt at the end and continue your mash for another 45 minutes so you get full conversion from the bulk of your base grains and then you get the sourness from the acidulated malt in the extended mash um i kind of wanted to really 
get the most sour flavor I could. So I did a full hour-long mash of my wheat and Pilsner malt, and at the, simultaneously in a smaller pot, did an hour-long mash of just the acidulated malt. And then after that hour-long period, I combined the two mashes and continued for 45 more minutes okay. um, with everything together, and then just watered and sparged as usual, and then proceeded with the boil, which then kills off any lactic culture. So right. I'm not going to be contaminating my stuff, but did introduce that sour flavor. Yeah. It- and I do, when I do ghosts, I do 20% acidulated malt. 20%. So you yeah. use a set percent. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean that's just kind of my base yeah. recipe. Yeah. But yeah, I find like the percentage isn't necessarily as important since you are mashing separately. Right. Like if I'm doing the two mashes separately, then it's not really. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just easier to depend because I feel like whenever I create my beer recipes, I always do it by, I start with percentages mm-hmm. rather than. I don't know. That's just how yeah. it works easier in my head. Well, so. I did I did my main I mean for my main the main grains, I did it percentage wise. Right, right. Because for uh to be a goza, it's since it's a uh, wheat beer, you want uh, at least 50% wheat malt. And right. traditionally, I hear the 60 40, 60% wheat to 40% pilsner is a common ratio that's used. Mm-hmm. So, I set up my main grain bill that way percentage wise and then just kind of treated the acidulated as like a separate thing. Totally separate thing. Yeah. yeah. And this is a great recipe to do as a brew in a bag, by the way, for yeah. those of you who do brew in a bag out there. Why is that, Mary? Because it's just easy. <laughs> and also, wheat can be sticky, exactly. so there are no rice holes involved when you do brew in a bag. Yeah. And it's very easy. I mean, I don't... It would be easy to do. I haven't... When I do mine, I don't usually mash the acidulated at the same time, but I add it after mm-hmm. I do an extended mash. But again, it's very easy to add grain to your brew in a bag and, you know... Yeah. I, I do my mash in the oven, so it's super easy to keep temperature. Yeah, and when Danielle and I were, um, when she first came up with the goza recipe that we sell at the store, um, she did it just adding the grains <clears throat> at the end and doing the extended mash, and I did the two simultaneous mashes. And then, you know, we kind of compared for flavor afterwards. And it was interesting. They definitely were, they were very different beers, even though our ingredients had been the same. The levels of salt and coriander had all been consistent. Did you prefer one over the other or just um, found them to be different good examples of the same beer yeah they're just different good examples of the same beer there's kind of aspects of both that i think we all favored in one or the other um and it was interesting i actually forgot i had a couple bottles of mine sitting around and some of them sat for like eight months and um initially there'd been a little bit of like a sulfur aroma which was just kind of off-putting like everything else about the beer i think was was really nice and a lot of people preferred it to the other one but the sulfur just kind of did detract from the final product um but somehow i don't really know why because sulfur i i didn't think was something that dissipated <clears throat> in the bottle but after eight months had disappeared and the bar and the beer had also um gotten a lot tartar and was very nice actually yeah i've seen sulfur disappear because when i did that cider yeast experiment um and the short meat yeast experiment some of it i used some yeast that like a lager yeast in Munich lease that weren't ideal for the mm-hmm. conditions, but it was a good experiment. But those actually, like the Munich had a lot of sulfur originally. So did the Belle Saison, I think. And that actually went away. Some of those bottles I like tucked in the bottom of the fridge. Yeah. And I think they further fermented a little bit in the bottle. And yeah. so, you know, matured and the sulfur did die down. So, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with this one. Um, I'm hoping with like the nice cool fermentation and stuff, it should come out pretty clean from the, from the get go. Um, and then kind of the, I was debating, um, I wanted to either do it with pink salt and hibiscus, because I thought the tartness of hibiscus flowers would complement the goza nicely, and um, 
So at the end of my boil, after the salt and the coriander, and I kind of just like scooped a little of the wort up and steeped some hibiscus flowers and was like sipping on that and sipping on the straight wort. And they were both really nice. And I was just kind of like, oh, no, the boil's almost going to end. I need to make my decision. Um, Because if I was going to use the hibiscus initially, I wanted to just steep them in the wort itself instead of instead of of the boil yeah instead of making a separate tea and adding it in just be like use the wort as the hot liquid for the tea um but since i couldn't decide which one i liked better (laughs) i decided that i am just gonna add a tea after fermentation at the time of bottling so then i can bottle half of it just straight and then half of it with the hibiscus right that's exactly what i have in front of us (laughs) i think also just talking about thinking about holiday flavors they're just like you're talking about enhancing the tartness. So, you know, with acidulous, if you like a really tart style lacto-based sour, like a tart uh, Berliner or a tart Gosa, but you don't want to commit to the lactic, lactobacillus. So mm-hmm. you want to use this kind of shortcut acidulated malt method, but you can easily enhance the tartness through hibiscus or another way is cranberry. I was also thinking yeah, that. And yeah, cranberry is perfect for the, you know, winter season. November, December, January. So I think it would be super easy to eat, add, you know, either cranberries in secondary or make a tincture, add them at bottling, at kegging, you know, that kind of thing. You could also use a little bit of spices if you wanted to. I am, uh, for anything that I ferment cranberry-wise, I typically like to make the cranberry up front and the spices less, Mm -hmm. Um, but I really like star anise and lemon peel with cranberry. So that's kind of my thing. But um, there's a lot of different sp- herbs and spices that <clears throat> complement cranberry. Yeah, well, I was originally thinking cranberry because I was like, oh, I'll use pink salt and cranberry. It'll be great for the holidays and try a, a way to transform this traditionally summer beer into more of an appropriate holiday winter beer. But when using cranberries, it is the whole issue of do you want to put them in secondary? And there are sugars involved, so it is going to affect the fermentation. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of just like, oh, hibiscus. Because I just made a hibiscus soda, so I had some flowers left over and... Um, I was like, oh, that's great, because I don't have to deal with any of these sugar fermentation issues. It'll just add the flavor yep. and the color that I was looking for. And then another thing that I wanted to do um, is I have an applewood smoked salt, and I was thinking it'd be interesting to do mm-hmm. the smoked salt in there as a way to introduce a smoky flavor, because this summer I had a couple, um, forget the brewery that did it, but a smoked Berliner Weiss, and it has a name. A gr- Graditsky. Or yeah. Gr- yeah. Or Gratzer. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or Lickenhainer. Yeah. I think it's Lickenhainer. Yeah, that's the smoked Berliner yeah. Weiss. Because the Grazer would just be a smoked wheat beer, wouldn't it? Well, but some some Grazers or Gorditskis are a little bit sour, okay. too. I think eh, there's some debate about whether they should be. But yeah, Lickenhainer is definitely sour and... Yeah. But so I was thinking, you know, since there's a precedent for a smoky sour beer, it would be interesting to try and just use the smoked salt to have it be like a very subtle thing. Yeah. Um, so I probably will brew it again at some point and try that. Yeah. See what happens. I like it. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to Fermented About It.
The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Brooks Headley, the pastry chef at Del Posto in Manhattan, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Foment About It on Heritage Radio Network. We are talking about all things holiday, making holiday beers, brewing in the winter, and actually we have a surprise guest tonight, and his name is Sean Paxton, the homebrew chef. Sean Paxton, you on online? Sean Paxi, wherefore art thou? Well, we will continue on with some others. If I can't hear you, Sean, so we're going to talk more. Wait, are you there? I am. Paxi is there. Hey. Hey. <laughs> How you doing? Howdy, man? howdy. <laughs> That was odd. We could not hear you at all. But I'm sure you were talking a lot of really awesome things. So just to, <laughs> so Sean, we've we've known you for years, and, and we've, we've tasted and, and delighted in in, in your work. Uh, we're going to keep today short. We'd love to have you on again and talk get real deep into stuff. But I'd like to talk. I'd like you to wax poetic about your your brined turkey recipe and why brine and beer brine and all that jazz. All that jazz. Well, beer brining is a real interesting thing because I think, one, if you think about a turkey, is it's a large bird. It's a large chicken. And how do you get it seasoned all the way through? I mean, we struggle sometimes with a uh, chicken sometimes just to get it seasoned properly. And when you start to think about the mass of a bird, and almost every cookbook out there says, you know, to cook it to 180 degrees, and, you know, it just it kills it. And so beer brining is a real interesting way to not only season the bird from the inside out, but also to guarantee a moist, juicy, succulent turkey that everybody's going to rave about. And it's also a great way to add flavor to turkey, which is somewhat of a mild meat. I mean, it has a, a mild or a little bit more aggressive flavor, but aggressive might be a strong word when it comes to chicken. And this is where, you know, when you really get into beer brining, it's a great way to basically make a salt, sugar, and beer and water solution with some other flavorings and actually just to infuse it in over about 36 to 48 hours, depending on the size turkey you have. In the past five years, the average hopping rate of American craft beer has gone up 41%. How do you Whoa, choose? that's a great statistic. <laughs> it is a great statistic. I learned it at hop school at the hop union. <laughs> but uh, it's crazy. So we're using more hops than ever before. But, you know, you talk about audacity, and you know, that's a lot of flavor impact. How do you choose the beer for, for your turn? Well, using the right beer is really important. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, when you think about flavors and you think about hops, the longer we cook hops in the boil when we're making beer, the more bitter it becomes. And the same th- you know, philosophy goes through in cooking with beer. And so I like to use beers that are less hoppy, so that 41%, let's just get rid of those beers. <laughs> um, I like to use beers that actually have a lot of the melanoidin malts or malts that are really rich that have been basically caramelized in the malting and uh, kilning process of the malts that actually creates 
that Maillard reaction or that caramelized sugar protein reaction. So it's like when you cook a steak or you sear off a chicken breast and you get that great skin and that great crunch and that nice meaty richness. The same thing happens with malt when it's kilned, much like roasting coffee, but at a lower temperature for a longer period of time versus a high temperature for a short period of time. And you create these complex sugars and these complex flavors that go with that. And so when we translate that into what beer styles have that, think about a Bach. Think about a a Doppelbach. Think about... Uh, you know, a Dunkelweiss, uh, you know, you can go into your brown ales, your southern brown ales. Um, all those beers will work really beautifully with turkey. I mean, it's just a natural pairing. You know, even like a Vienna lager, you know, um, all these different, uh, like a, a Rogan beer, like that rye malt has some of that characteristic as well. So you're going to, you, you want people to look for like a a brown ale that's malty, toasty, without being roasty or too hoppy. Well, uh, without being too hoppy. Um, right. The roast is okay. Or like that um, that's why we're not like using not like the... a stout or a right. big porter or something like that. And you could use like a smoked porter if you want to create a turkey that's almost like a smoked turkey flavor, but without smoking it. So that's also a different direction you can go. And so this is where it's really interesting is because like that Bach, that Doppelbach, that Oktoberfest, that Martzen, that, um, you know, Rogan beer, all those are going to be really great beers to use. And my recipe that's on homebrewchef.com is actually really easy to use because it calls for basically four quarts or one gallon of beer, which is two growlers or ten bottles. 10, 12-ounce bottles. So what size turkey? For basically anything from like a 16-pound all the way up to like a 25-pound turkey. And with any turkey that you brine, I recommend like every 6 to 12 hours, you just kind of move it around and like flip it over just so it has a real even brine to it. And uh, you can put this into a big container if you have room in your fridge. You can actually like basically put some boiling hot water into your cooler, like your ice chest, and kind of sanitize your cooler and then fill it with ice beforehand and then uh, pour the ice out into Ziploc bags and seal it and then put your cold brine into the cooler along with your clean turkey and then put those ice bags basically in. That way it won't dilute the brine, but keep it cold if you don't have room in your fridge. And brine for how long? Uh, Depending on the size, anywhere between 48 and 72 hours. So there's still time. It's Monday now. Oh, it's perfect. This is actually tomorrow is a perfect day to kind of start your brines. And uh, this will ensure that just super juicy, moist, decadent turkey with the best flavor. And I swear, everybody will be like, this turkey is amazing. This is what I want every year. It's number one on Google. It's pretty awesome. And you don't have to just eat turkey on Thanksgiving or Christmas. You can oh, and if, I just had somebody email me today. He's like, I'm doing your, your beer brine turkey because I'm going to my family's house, and, I, and I'm just going to be left with like a small plate of leftovers that I get every year that I can barely even make a sandwich with. So I'm making it again just so I can have it around afterwards. Right on. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. It's a great recipe. I highly recommend it. Homebrewchef.com. Taxi, thank you so much, man. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, you're welcome. Back ben, and I can't wait to see you. Yeah, happy happy, Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. <laughs> Cheers. Have a good one. You too. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> all right, back to the I love so- that, man. First of all, let me just say <laughs> I do that. too. He's taller than all of us combined. <laughs> he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's not why and I love him. Absolutely great guy. Amazing <laughs> chef. 
Yeah. Your love of people is proportionate to their height. <laughs> right, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> well, I mean, no, no, not at all. <laughs> all right, so we were just talking about holiday beverages. And we're kind of, these are kind of think outside the box holiday beverages. So you had mentioned a cran, when we went out on break, you mentioned a cranberry soda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've been doing a lot with naturally fermented sodas. Um, so I know that you've done a lot with like water kefir grains, um, kind of just different ways of introducing natural carbonation into a soda. Um, it's something where you're not, your goal is not to produce alcohol. It's just or to, to produce very little. To produce very little, yeah. I have, I mean, to, I have to add that disclaimer. Yes. Yeah, most of these beverages have a teeny bit of alcohol. They do. <laughs> so be aware of that and um, comfortable with it. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the level that's in kombucha. It's right. kind of when like there was the big thing that came out that kombucha does have a little bit of alcohol in it. It's just it's a byproduct of fermentation, so it will be there. Um, and it's also with a lot of these beverages, since you're not specifically testing for your alcohol levels the way that you are in a beer, um, you know it can take people by surprise. But the way the methods don't really leave room for high levels of alcohol production. Um, you know you're ending up with a lot of residual sweetness and sugar. Um, you're just ending up with some carbonation. Um, yeah, so I've been doing these naturally fermented sodas with a ginger bug. Awesome. So what's a ginger bug? I've done some ginger bug before. Um, so a ginger bug is basically like a sourdough culture, but instead of flour and water, it's made out of ginger and sugar and water. Um, and so you start it with just a mixture of like four ounces of water, um, a couple teaspoons of grated ginger, a couple teaspoons of sugar. Let that sit for a couple days until you see a little bit of bubbles on the top to indicate there's some fermentation happening. Um, and then it's ready to go, but I like to really build it up by, for every day or two, for about a week, I'll just add another teaspoon or two of fresh grated ginger and another teaspoon of sugar um, just to kind of like make sure it's got a nice healthy yeast thing going on. Um, and then you can, and it will kind of get a crap, like a bubble crowsing yeah, kind yeah, of thing. On top. Like so you'll little, know it's working. Yeah. And you know, I've had ones that I've noticed they've gotten like a lactic growth on the top, like a little dusty thing. And I generally pitch, I get rid of them. If that happens, I try to keep them really, really clean. Um, and as long as you're feeding them regularly and like using it and have turnaround, um, they tend to stay really, really clean. Um, and though if you let them go and get that pellicle, yeah. you can get a nice sour soda starter that works great if yeah. you want sour tart sodas. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot you can do with it. This it's, it's, think about it like sourdough bread, right? Yeah. You can buy sourdough bread from a number of different bakeries and they're all going to be a little bit different. So it's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, you have a lot of like different range of flavors and I've had different ginger bugs that have had produced very different. I, I started doing them to make ginger beer, which is what they traditionally be used for. So you just boil ginger and sugar um, and water and then you cool that down to about body temperature, either by diluting it with some more cold water or just letting it sit. Um, and then you strain the gin- you strain that mixture, strain the ginger bug, combine them, and then put them into sealed bottles. So either like the plastic PET bottles that are you know have a sealed cap or flip top bottles are great. That's what I like to use. Um, and then just leave that at room temperature for a couple days. And the yeast that was in the ginger bug is gonna eat a little bit of those sugars in your sugar syrup and produce carbonation. You'll see some bubbles around the top. Um, and then after a few days, once I start to see a few bubbles, I'll open one always over the sink because sometimes you don't know exactly <laughs> how active the yeast is and they can definitely be very, very carbonated. Um, and that's a good thing about flip top bottles. Yeah. Well, first of all, PET bottles like will hold a tremendous amount, like up to 150 PSI. And they're nice because you can actually f- squeeze yeah. the plastic yeah. and tell when they're carbonated because you can feel that there's pressure building in there. Yeah. But flip top, you can also burp. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're wondering, you can always burp your flip top yep. and then... You know, if it if it 
you know, if, if it's not carbonated enough, then just put the cap back on. And leave it at room temperature. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so with these, you know, once once they do have a level of carbonation that you like, you do need to move them into the fridge because otherwise they will keep fermenting um, and can get dangerously carbonated. Because it's ginger bug and there's some bugs in there that will keep yeah. going. Just keep yeah, going. Stuff well, and keep producing carbonation yeah, too, basically. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, and so I kind of was inspired by some successful batches of ginger beer and I'd done it with using turmeric instead of ginger to make like a turmeric soda, um, which has a nice flavor. And I was like, well, what could I just carbonate anything with this ginger bug? And so I made a batch of hibiscus soda, like the Jamaican hibiscus drink, which is hibiscus and sugar and lime juice. Um, and sometimes it has some spices, like some allspice and some clove. I decided to not do the spices, just do the hibiscus pitch in the ginger bug. Um, and that came out great. Um, and so then I did a lemonade. I just bought like one of those Santa Cruz all natural shelf stable lemonades. I picked some lavender from my garden, just chopped that up, left it in the fridge in the bottle for about a week um, until it had like a nice lavender aroma and then let it sit on the counter to kind of come up to room temperature, pitch the ginger bug into that and then transferred it to sealed bottles. Um, that worked pretty well. And then I tried to do a root beer just by, combination of root beer spices and that was not so successful um, you'll tweak it though yeah root, beer's a, root beer has a lot of weird ingredients or you know ingredients yeah. that we're not used to working mm-hmm. with so and there's a lot out there on the spices that are used you know i guess sassafras was traditionally used and then there was some like backlash because people are concerned about uh carcinogens carcinogens in the saffron i guess can be like a mild liver toxin but i guess that compounds also in cinnamon so there's debate so <laughs> It moved with the root beer, um, moving to, like, wintergreen as being a primary flavoring. Um, and so, yeah, but there's a lot of different herbs you can use and a lot of different levels. And I kind of looked at a few recipes and was like, oh, well, I'll put this together. And there's some... It wasn't the right combination of spices. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try that one again. Um, and then the cranberry soda was... I'd gotten a bottle of nice 100% cranberry juice, um, like, fresh juice, the way you'd get fresh orange juice and i was like oh this is awesome like got to do something cool with this so um it was very tart pretty much no sugar cranberries are not sweet um so i boiled a little bit of sugar with some lime zest um and some water and then combined that with the cranberry juice and pitched the ginger bug and i just checked a bottle before i came here but it's not carbonated i did it just two days ago and the cool temperatures in the house mean i need about a week before (laughs) those things get get carbonated and I'm going to do a cranberry soda for Thanksgiving. So I've been requested where we're going for Thanksgiving to do it, to bring some alcoholic stuff, but also non-alcoholic. So I'm just going to um, do a cranberry soda. I think I'm going to actually try to – usually when I do my cranberry sodas or fermentations, I co- like do kind of cook the cranberries mm-hmm. to get the juice. But I think I might just try to – we have a pretty decent juicer. So just juice them fresh. Oh, yeah. And then I'm going to use lemon zest and star anise. So make a little tea with my sugar and then just force carbonate that probably in with a carb cap. Yeah. Um, and then I also made – so I'm a huge fan of Trader Joe's teas and – fermenting things with with kind of pre-mixed teas especially when you're feeling a little lazy you know so i actually picked up this trader joe's harvest blend herbal tea which has cinnamon ginger hibiscus um an apple chamomile chicory and a little bit of orange peel so i actually did a short mead with that um almost a week ago now so that'll be ready for thanksgiving and then I also picked up another tea at Trader Joe's that was a coconut green tea with lemongrass and ginger, which isn't really, I wouldn't say that's seasonal, but I think it'll go really well with kind of yeah. Thanksgiving type of foods. 
Um, it's so, nice and refreshing, kind yeah. of a change of flavor. So I just actually made that tea, added sugar to it, and champagne yeast. So it's just straight fermented sweet tea. Um, but I have high hopes for that. I fermented green tea before, and I really love it. So That's interesting. I was thinking about doing a tea fermentation, and I was kind of like, tea soda, that seems but that's kind of what kombucha is. But it, it is kind of what kombucha is. And I mean, I, I do make a lot of kombucha. That was definitely one of the things that got me started fermenting. It's maybe not my favorite beverage. Um, but but yeah, so I was kind of, I've always been hesitant to do the teas, but I should I should give that a try. Yeah, dude, I, I'm a huge <laughs> fan. So before we go, we have to have Kuzme talk about, well, what if you want a flavored beer for Thanksgiving, but you don't have one? What can you do? <laughs> Well, well, well. You we can you can always tincture it the way we you know we've talked about that a lot about how we are big fans of it, and uh, I wanted to reiterate that tonight because I learned that my friend makes one of my favorite pumpkin beers. I'm not always a, a pumpkin beer lover, um, but he basically takes his regular seasonal beer, seasonal beer, goes into the kitchen, um, and and makes this kind of squash spiced wildflower honey. Uh, concoction reduces it down for about an hour and a half and then blends it with his regular beer and kegs it up um, and it's awesome and so I did that this time with or this year with uh, with a Belgian double that I had made that was roughly seven percent and it worked beautifully it was amazing so it was like cinnamon uh, fresh ginger uh, basically there's still time if you have anything fermenting at all right now and you're ready to keg it up you can have it keg you can do this make your little tincture keg it up and, and have something really nice and spicy no matter what direction you decide to go um, with, with those spices or with, the, and with that nice tincture and that's nice because it doesn't you don't have so much danger of going overboard so I feel right. like how a lot of people fail because you can actually have the finished beer and taste it with the like figure out your rate Absolutely. based yeah. on flavor instead of just being like I'm going to put these things in and in a month I'll see if it worked yep I think if you're bottling off your keg, what if you're filling growlers off your keg? You could even add could a tincture it, right? there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I yeah. think this is honestly worth thinking about, especially if you want to. Also, if you just want to experiment with players, the Beer other cocktails are fine. Yeah, it's yeah. A, basically what's going on. The other on. big cheat, which I learned from Serious Eats, is to do. A French, French press. press yeah. yeah. So put your beer in a French press, whether it be a homebrew or a commercial beer. Hey, maybe you got. Maybe you just have too much of a blonde ale or something. You know, a wheat beer, and mm-hmm. you're. You're tired of wheat beers, man. Add some cranberries and like a little bit of lime zest in. You know, put your beer in a French press. Add a little bit of cranberry. You know, mat mash up your cranberries. Maybe boil them down a little bit, cool them. Add those to a French press with your herbs and spices or citrus peel of choice. You know, let that sit for I'd say sixty seconds to uh, two minutes, maybe. Yeah, it usually doesn't take long. Yeah, press it, and you will have a freaking brilliant flavored, you know, holiday flavored beer. Don't be too concerned about losing too much carbonation. You will lose a little bit, but if, as long as you drink it quick. And uh, you know, remember, remember Henry's Law while you're going through things. <laughs> Keep that thing cold. Awesome. <laughs> and I think that's our show for tonight. <laughs> yeah. Great. B, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, Paxi, thank you for calling in. And uh, if thank- you want more, so if you want to read about, if you want to read your Ghost of Colored Glasses yep. blog post, it's on the new Brooklyn Homebrew Boil Over blog, which is at theboilover.tumblr.com. You can also get there from Brooklyn Homebrew's yep. main site. Can I make a quick holiday plug? Yeah. Um, so if you live in the Bushwick or surrounding area, there's going to be a Christmas tree stand artist village on Charles Street, which is um, a short little dead-end street off of Myrtle between Bushwick and Evergreen. Um, it's going to be Christmas trees. There's going to be um, art for sale. There's going to be performances. Um, 
there's going to be a gingerbread house with two elves selling all of the trees and the cargo bike collective is going to be doing tree delivery um so if you're in the market for a christmas tree or you just want to go check out the art or hang out um their costumes are going to be amazing um and the opening party is this friday from 6 to 9 p.m on charles place that sounds like the perfect post-Thanksgiving yeah. event. That's Where right. Little Skip's Cafe and Norbert's are for the local folks that might help place the street since it's kind of obscure. Right on. Awesome. And if you are out there celebrating Thanksgiving and whatever other holidays, I hope that you're inspired to not only brine your turkey with beer, but try, some, yeah, but try some interesting flavors either through tincture or, um, or brewing with. So have fun. Celebrate. About it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Got to say-